once I entered, became a pastor, I entered this world of realizing, if I hadn't before, that, you know, church is very political. And churches who try to avoid being political have to avoid the gospel. There's just simply no way around it. So I would like to sort of lift a burden upon you. This does tie in with what we're talking about today. So I'd like to sort of lift a burden from you and let you know that you don't have to check your politics at the door when you come to church. Feel free to disagree with me. Feel free to disagree with others. I pray we do it in the place of the gospel, though. And the reason I say that is the prayer we just prayed, the Lord's Prayer. Did you hear the language that Jesus gave us? Your kingdom come. Right? We're praying that God's kingdom, God's reign, begins and starts in our lives and in the life of the church over the others. In the creeds that we sang today, we sang what is believed to be the oldest Christian creed, which is Jesus is Lord. And that was a direct affirmation against the claim that Caesar was Lord. To say Jesus was Lord was an act of treason in the eyes of many. And for this reason, many Christians were persecuted. And today we're going to be reading the story of Exodus. And I think we whitewash this if we pretend that there's not a political narrative here. We are talking about the most powerful nation on the earth, we think, at the time, or at least one of them. And the ruler of that nation coming into direct confrontation with God and God's prophet. It's very political. We can't avoid this. If we claim that God is our ultimate authority, and we claim that God is in charge, that means what, regardless of what nation, what culture, what place we find ourselves in, there will be moments in time when standing on that ground is going to be a very political statement. And that's okay. That's okay. Let's read. To Actually, you know, what we're going to do today is a little bit different. I normally begin with scripture, but as we're moving through this series on Exodus, we come to the probably the most famous part of Exodus, which is the story about all the plagues. It's a rather long section. We could spend the whole time reading it, but I'm encouraging you to do some reading outside of the Sunday mornings. Uh, the reading plans are still a few more back there, I believe. I have them on the website. I have them on our Facebook page if you'd like to be reading along as we move through this series. So there's more than we can read. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize some of the plagues for you as we go through this. And then I'm going to um, enter in and we're going to read this um, Exodus 9 together, one of the stories. So if you remember where we have been in our Exodus narrative, Moses has uh, been saved as a baby. He's been, you know, seemingly divinely set aside for a purpose. He's raised up in Pharaoh's household. He is um, then caught because he's trying to protect his people and he attacks an Egyptian slave taskmaster and kills him. And then word gets out. Pharaoh puts a, says he's, Moses needs to be put to death. Moses flees to Midian. Moses is gone for a long time. He becomes a shepherd. He gets married. He has a kid. He is um, then confronted by God. On Mount Horeb, this mountain of God, and God says, Moses, I'm going to send you. And Moses gives him all of the excuses for why he shouldn't be the one to go. We looked at that last week. And then he finally agrees to go. And when he goes to Egypt, he is called to confront Pharaoh with this message of let my people go. Now, whether God had it this way or Moses and Aaron framed it this way, um, they begin to present to Pharaoh as we need to go worship God in the wilderness. And if you don't let us go worship God in the wilderness, 
then there's going to be pestilence and plagues that happen to us, so we have to go do this. And that's how Moses presents it. And then this great confrontation begins between God and Pharaoh, and these plagues begin to happen. So what happens is, oh, by the way, last week, I said we did the excuses of Moses. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at Moses' final statement to God after he arrived in Egypt, and the, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, were being treated even more cruelly. Because Pharaoh says, you're lazy. That's why you want to go worship God. So let's make you keep doing your work and keep making your quotas of making bricks, but without the straw. You have to go find it in the fields. We're not going to provide it for you. And then when they don't make their quotas, they're getting beaten. So things get worse. And we talked about how oftentimes things do get worse before they get better when we're following God. That happens at times. But Moses says to God, he says, God, this is five, chapter 5, 23. Don't believe me. God, you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. That was Moses' charge to God. And then God responds in chapter 6, 1. He says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. So it begins. Moses, the pattern of the plague stories is Moses goes before Pharaoh. And he'll say, let people go to worship God in the wilderness and Pharaoh says no I'm not going to do that he says if you don't do it this bad thing's going to happen and begins to plague the first one the first plague is the water turned to blood so Moses says and if you want to you know follow along with these by the way um, you can take a look at these as we go through this one is in chapter 7 so the first plague, Moses um, strikes the water with his staff of the, of the Nile, and everything turns to blood. In fact, it says all the water throughout the land of Egypt turns to blood. But the magicians of Pharaoh repeat the trick, apparently not through the whole land, but at least with something. They, they can turn water and make it look like blood. And so Pharaoh says, ah, I don't care about this. And he didn't care because it really didn't affect him. The people had to go and dig little holes beside the river to get fresh water. And if you don't really understand that, um, I've had to do that. You know, water acts as a natural filter. And when I was down at the bottom of the um, Grand Canyon, the first time I was there, our water filters gave out because the Colorado River is so turbid and so full of silt and sand. And so we actually had to dig holes on the sand next to the river, let that fill in with water, and then we could filter that because it was cleaner that way. And so that's what they're doing. So the people now have an inconvenience and a lot more work. Not Pharaoh, he doesn't care. So he says, I'm not letting people go. The second plague is the frogs. This would never bother me too much, but I know some people are really creeped out by this, right? The frogs cover everything, and specifically, Scripture says, they go into the beds, and they go into the ovens, and they go into the kneading bowls. So you can get the picture, the frogs are covering everything and everywhere, and obviously a huge nuisance. Somehow, the magicians, by their dark arts, or it says, or secret arts, I believe is the translation, are able to make some frogs appear. So again, Pharaoh's not overly impressed. However, though the magicians can make them appear, apparently they can't get them to go away. So finally, Pharaoh calls Moses and says, um, fine, I relent, you know, I'll let your people go. But he doesn't name, Pharaoh's a shrewd negotiator. He doesn't name who he's going to let go or where he's going to let them go to or anything like that. 
And then Moses says, okay, well, you name the time and the frogs will go away just to let you know that God's in control of this. And so Pharaoh says, tomorrow, tomorrow, Moses prays, the frogs go away. But once the frogs are gone, Pharaoh's heart hardens and he says, no, I won't let you go. By the way, this repeated phrase of you know, Pharaoh hardening his heart or God even hardening Pharaoh's heart uh, is something that we've carried forward into modern day. And I think it's a good, apt um, way to talk about when God is, is pushing something on us and he wants us to either turn away from a sin or he wants us to go in a certain direction. And sometimes we just have this thing inside of us that is just um, frozen and hard and unrelenting. And, and usually it's something about ourselves, about our own pride, about our own desires. And so Pharaoh is becoming really the biblical poster child for this kind of person as we go through the story. Extremely stubborn, but more than that, unrelenting and wanting, not wanting to turn to God. So the third plague, now this would be terrible, I have to admit, I couldn't handle this one, is the gnats. Now again, we, we struggle with translation, but we're thinking these are either biting gnats or stinging mosquitoes. We know it's some kind of biting, stinging insect. So it's not just the annoying gnats, which are bad enough. But they cover everything. They're thick. They're in clouds. And somehow the magicians try and they can't do this one. This is the first one that they're unable to produce. And they're everywhere. And you can just imagine the misery of this one, right? But I imagine again that for Pharaoh it wasn't the worst thing. Uh, I mentioned a few times I've been watching some you know, of the media representations, movies and things about the Exodus confrontation and all of this. And one of them I thought was pretty interesting because it was the most modern movie and and it had Pharaoh in his chamber and there was pots of smoke going up, filling, and he had really fine, like silk type, you know, stuff covering himself to protect him. And so he, I mean, again, Pharaoh can kind of insulate himself because of his wealth and power from some of the effects of this while others suffer, but this goes everywhere. And some here begin to recognize the work of a God of some kind, some of Pharaoh's officials, The Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. He won't let the people go. The fourth plague is the flies. You think after the gnats, the flies wouldn't be too bad. I don't know. Both are pretty terrible to me. Um, The difference with the flies, I think, is that even though there wasn't an understanding of disease and understanding of uh, bacteria and sickness. It says, they make the statement that the flies, the officials say the flies have ruined the land or the, the word spoiled. So I think the flies with them carry other things that are affecting everybody. And um, the flies, this time though, they go everywhere except for the land of Goshen. So this is the first one where the plague does not affect the Israelites. And so Moses makes this clear. So you will know that this is the God of the Israelites doing this. They're going to be spared from this. I often wonder if there was a little bit of a, I was going to say mass exodus. Isn't that interesting? But a, a, a you know, fleeing of others to the land of the slaves to be away from this. I would have gone. Um, so now the negotiations begin a little bit more with Pharaoh with, regarding the flies um, to get them to go away. Pharaoh says he'll let them go sacrifice in the wilderness, but not very far, he says. 
And then he still doesn't say who he's going to let go. But as soon as the flies are gone, Pharaoh backs out of the deal again. And then you get to the fifth one. This one, they get progressively worse in a lot of ways. And this one, all the livestock die. And this is the one that says in Scripture, it's the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the cattle, and the sheep. But the Israelites' livestock are spared again. Now, there's no negotiations listed at all in this one. The only thing that says it happened, Moses doesn't even go before Pharaoh. Because they're dead, he can't, you know, make, he doesn't, Pharaoh doesn't need Moses to make it stop. It's just happened. Moses said it would happen and happened. Pharaoh just checks. He sends a messenger to see if it's true that the Israelites' livestock were spared. And he gets word, yes, yes, that's true. Now, the sixth one undoubtedly would be the first one that would dramatically impact Pharaoh himself. And this is the plague of boils. This is a skin disease, painful abscesses of some kind all over the skins of all the people. Now, while Pharaoh may have been to mitigate the other plagues by his wealth and power, this one he would feel and he would know. In fact, the magicians now are in so much pain they can't even stand before Pharaoh to try to attempt to recreate what is happening. And no negotiations at all are listed and happen on this one. Pharaoh's heart is so hard, he just suffers and allows his people to suffer. Plague 7 is the one I want us to read as an example of all of these. So let's read together in Exodus 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself and upon your officials and upon your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show you my power, and to make my name resound throughout all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Tomorrow, at this time, I will cause the heaviest hail to fall that has ever fallen in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Send, therefore, and have your livestock, and everything that you have in the open field, Brought to a secure place. Every human or animal that is in the open field and is not brought under shelter will die when the hail comes down upon them. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried their slaves and livestock off to a secure place. Those who did not regard the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the open field. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that hail may fall on the whole land of Egypt, on humans and animals, and all the plants of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire came down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. There was hail with fire flashing continually in the midst of it, such heavy hail as had never fallen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the open field throughout all the land of Egypt, both human and animal. The hail also struck down all the plants of the field and shattered every tree in the field. 
Only in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need to stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they are late in coming up. So Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city, and stretched out his hand to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured down on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let Israelites go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, after this, we get the eighth plague, which is the locusts, and they come and they eat all that was left. That's a little editorial comment about how some of the crops had not yet been destroyed. And the locusts, as we know, they eat everything, and they just devoured any living thing, basically, that was left growing. Any um, fruit or plant was destroyed. And now the officials, after this one, they're on Moses' side and God's side. And they're saying how the, the land is completely laid waste. Just let them go. And so Pharaoh listens, apparently, and he agrees to meet with Moses and let them go. But then he decides he's only going to let the men go worship. And Moses said, everyone's got to go. The kids, too. And, and Pharaoh disagrees. He backs off and says, no, I'm not going to let it happen. And then the ninth plague is darkness, and it's a darkness that can be felt. It's a heavy, thick darkness. Interestingly, no darkness where the Israelites live. How that all works, I don't fully understand, but that's what happens. And Pharaoh, once again, after apparently quite some time, days of darkness, says he will let them go, but the flocks and herds have to stay. And Moses again says, no, everything has to go. And Pharaoh says, no way, if you ever come in my presence again, I will kill you. You'll be dead. And Moses says, very well, I'll never come before you again. And that's where we're going to end it today in terms of the plagues. And we're going to look at the final plague and the Passover next week. So I want to talk some about this, um, this plague, looking at, again, the story we read with the thunder and the hail. Because in this one... I think we have a key for understanding what's going on in, throughout these plagues and what God is doing. So if we look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 9. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show, my, show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. So God reveals that the reason he's 
going about get, setting his people free in the way he is is because he has a purpose and his purpose is to reveal his power to people who are worshiping all these other gods and to help his name be known throughout the earth. In fact, we know that the Egyptians worshiped many different gods and some have seen the plagues and have said, if you look carefully, you can see that each one of these plagues is actually happening against a specific God that was supposed to be in control in Egypt over that type of thing, whether it be the water or the animals or those kinds of things. And um, I think that's interesting. I'm not convinced that's a full explanation of why the plagues happen the way they do. However, I do know that like most ancient people, they did believe that there were gods who had control over these things. And for one God to show up in this way would have certainly had people questioning what they believed and what was going on. God is revealing himself as sovereign. As Reformed Christians, this is one of our key tenets of our faith. We believe that God is sovereign. And when we say God is sovereign, um, it's a way of saying God does what God wants to do. God has the power to do whatever God wants to do. He doesn't ask human beings for permission. It doesn't always make sense to us. God acts in the ways that, that God wants to act. It's not, we know God has revealed himself. He's, he's not capricious. He's not cruel. He's not mean. But at the same time, it doesn't always make sense to us. And God is revealing himself to be powerful in a way that is going to be defining for God's people for all time. God wants the world to know the truth. You see, the Egyptian people, they were constantly being deceived by these Magicians that keep popping up in the story and others who practice secret arts and dark arts. And they convince the people that if you do certain things, usually involving sacrifice or even things to your own children or whatever it was, that you could appease some deity. You could twist them to your will. And the Egyptian people are living in this darkness. And so God's purposes here are much bigger than simply his own people. He says, I'm doing this to you, Pharaoh. And I think you could add, in one of the greatest nations on the earth right now, so that my name might be known, so you'll understand, people will know who I am. God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of all people. And all nations, and God is using Israel for a purpose. And this is how it's always worked. Back when God called Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to take you away from your family and your people to a new land. I'm going to make you in a great, into a great nation. And then a lot of the times we stop there. We forget that it says, for a purpose. For through you, all nations of this earth will be blessed. And now we have Abraham's descendants in Egypt, and God is showing up. And he's revealing himself to the people. Did you notice in this plague that there was something that was different than the others? I know we didn't read them all, but I sort of shared the story with you. The one thing that's really different in this plague is that when the thunder and the hail, before it comes, they're given a warning. And they're said, you can avoid this one. So now it's not just God's people who can be set aside, but all of you can avoid this one. It's coming, so bring everybody in out of the fields. Get them under shelter. Get them under protection. And those who feared God did, and those who didn't fear God did not. And then they paid the consequences. 
And, you know, again, this, this plague, um, I can't really imagine what this would be like to go through this for days and days and days. There's been some pretty darn big hail recorded in the world, most of it in the um, middle of the United States. They get some of the biggest stuff. And there's been multiple times when hundreds of people have been killed by hailstorms. I mean, this is not something that never happens. It, it can happen. When hail can get that big, it can damage cars, it can damage houses, it can kill animals, it can kill people. But to have this going on day after day, if, I imagine most of you have been in a pretty good thunderstorm before. We don't really get the real terrifying ones here, but if you've been maybe in the tropics before and seen one of those thunderstorms or maybe been in Oklahoma or in the Midwest or even on the east side of the mountains, sometimes some pretty crazy thunderstorms. And the, the power of that is really hard to describe. I, um, when I was a firefighter, there were multiple times when I had to go out and respond to fires in the middle of these thunderstorms. And there were times when lightning struck extremely close. I've seen lightning strike, you know, within walking distance of where I'm standing. And when it happens that close, um, you don't hear it as much as you feel it. And I, my grandfather actually was struck by lightning twice in his life and survived to tell about it. He was a roofer. And one time it traveled through a barbed wire fence and got him when he was riding his horse. Both times he survived. But I can tell you, I have not been to war. I have not been to those kinds of situations. But <clears throat> I imagine the closest I've been to has been around the lightning and thunder when it's coming down around you. It is absolutely terrifying. It is terrifying. And you feel like you have no control. You don't know where it's going to hit, when it's going to happen. And all you want is to be safe and to be away from it and to have this going on for days upon days. And you know that there are people who are saying, who is this God of Israel that is doing this? Surely much greater than any of those gods I see in those temples around and those who had their, their um, themselves, their family, and their servants saved by this are certainly understanding who this God is. So there's a couple of really important truths that I think we can pull out of this text as we look at these plagues, and specifically the one that we just looked at. The first one is that God has always been a God who sins his people to reveal himself to a broken world. This has always been part of the narrative. And if we don't step back big enough to see it, we miss it. You have to go back a little bit further in the story in scripture to understand how God brought Joseph through all of those difficulties to Egypt and rose him up to power and how um, Israel and his family arrived in Egypt and how they lived there and how centuries have passed and now something else is happening and God is revealing his power in a new way. And he's going to take his people out into the wilderness and then over to the promised land. And out of that will eventually come the prophets and some of the kings and the recording of scripture. And then through that will eventually come Jesus and the church. 
and a message to go out into all the world and make disciples. You see, God is always using his people for a purpose. His people aren't an end in and of themselves to be separated from the world and to forget the rest because God is God of all creation. He cares for every single human being he has made. When we talk about the fear of God, it's not just being afraid of God, but it's understanding that God is a creator. God is sovereign. God is in control. And sometimes that's a message people need to hear before their hearts are willing to be softened and turn to God. So the first thing that I think is so important is that God has always been a God who has used and sent his people for a purpose to reveal himself to the world. As the church, if we lose this part of our identity, we have lost one of our most essential connections to God's work in this world and to God's story. This is hard, I think, because it's really easy for us to be comfortable. We want to be, <clears throat> we want to be a little bit insulated. We want to be with people who are like us, who make us feel good. We want to be comfortable. And yet God is God who is moving and working and pushing and pulling. And as the church, we have this identity. Now, we're wrestling with what that means as Thailand, but we have that banner mission up there as an important reminder that that's part of our identity. The Holy Spirit was sent to us and then we're sent out into this place where we live. And that includes when you go to the grocery store. That includes when you go to buy coffee. That includes when you go to work. All of that is part of God's mission. The question is whether we will claim that identity and be willing to see what God wants to do through us and in us. It is a little bit scary, but it's also exciting to know that God, the living God, the God who did these plagues and did all of this is still working. And there's people in this community that God is saying, I want to reveal myself to them. I'm going to use you to do it. The second thing I really wanted to key in on here as we look at this is this idea that God has been a God who desires everyone to know him. No matter how far away they are, no matter how corrupt they are, God is a God who desires all to know him. Galatians 3.28 Paul can say, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Jesus Christ. Anytime we fall into an us versus them mentality, and I don't care whether that's over religion, whether that's over politics, whether that's over nationality, whether that's over sports, I don't, class, whatever it is that we, where we draw those lines, whenever we fall into an us versus them mentality, we're, that doesn't come from God's heart. And that might seem a little strange to you for me to say that when we're in Exodus and you go, but yeah, but that's, that's God versus the Egyptians. That's an us versus them, God's people versus their people. But right within the text, it makes it clear that God has a purpose, and the purpose isn't just about his people. The purpose is about letting the world know who God is. Because the world is God's, the universe is God's. 
Today, I think the us versus them is typically pitched as Christian versus Muslim, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, or for us, America versus Russia or whoever, whatever nation we want to throw in there at the time, right? Or we could throw in all the racial divisions we have. While not everybody is a part of God's church, we have to understand this is God's desire. This is God's heart. Is that everybody would be part of his church. 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. It says, This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. It's a great passage of scripture that reminds us that God's heart is that he desires every single person to be saved. If you want to pitch it as some are going to heaven, some are going to hell, I think if you know my heart, I think that it's often much more difficult than that as we talk about our relationship to God and, and our rebellion to God. It's not just a, you know, do good and go to heaven, do bad and go to hell. That's certainly not the gospel, okay? But there are those who we know are going to be separated from God and God's heart is that all would come to be with him. And if we don't believe that, Paul says, just look at Jesus Christ, who God sent himself human, gave himself as a ransom for all. The story of Exodus becomes a key story for God's people in understanding how God works in the world and what God is doing. He's working to reveal his power by saving, in this case, the Israelites, but for the purpose of the world knowing and seeing how God works. And God still goes to great lengths to reveal truth to those who are trapped in darkness. God still does this today. This is still God's heart. And so I I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, and I think it's good for us to be thinking, how are we participating in that? If that's God's heart and that's God's will, how are we doing that? You know, too often we, we think that what that means is, okay, next time I go to QFC, I need to have an awkward conversation with the person next to me about Jesus. You know, and so we go, I, I just, I don't know if, if I want to do that. You know, that's, that's really too hard. I love Jim Gaffigan. Anyone listen to Jim Gaffigan? He's a comic. He's a, he's a clean comic, by the way. Catholic. He's pretty open about that. Um, he, he has some great stuff about that. You'll have to watch it if, sometime. But he was, he was talking about that. And he said, he said, is there anything more uncomfortable than talking to someone about Jesus? And then he goes on in his joke and he says, the Pope could be sitting there and some guy would come up to him and say, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? And he'd go, get away from me, you weirdo. And I, I know that's not true. But I think he gets at the root of the problem, which is, you see, we understand that there is nothing more important in life that we could be having a conversation with about than Jesus. Because of that, so many of us feel completely inadequate to have that conversation. Because we, it's not because we, we just are too scared or too, too shy or too introverted. But it's also because 
we believe very deeply that this is it. There is nothing more important that I conversation I can have with a stranger in the supermarket than about Jesus, and I'm not sure I can do that and do it right. Well, here's the thing. Did you hear how the story works? Moses goes to God and says, God, you haven't done anything. God says, okay, Moses, just let me show you. You know, if we went around this room and we had conversations, I bet every single one of you would be able to share a story, either about yourself or about someone you know, about how God did something amazing in your life or in their life to reveal himself to them or to you. I mean, those stories happen all the time because this is still how God works. So it's not a question of whether we have to get it all done because you're right, we can't. I guess I'm talking myself here. I'm right. I can't be the one who gets it all done. But I do want to be a part of what God's doing. And I need to be asking that question, God, how are you using me? How do you want to reveal yourself for me? Other, you know, other times I think what we do with this is we say, okay, then what that means is I'm going to be the one who's really nice. And when I'm in the line at Starbucks, I'm going to pay for the guy behind me. And that's going to show them who Jesus is. Or I'm going to be the one who, you know, buys a bunch of gifts at Christmas for a family. By the way, these are all things I've done and I believe in. I think, you know, just serving in these little ways are great. I think we need to be doing that. But we also don't want to trick ourselves in saying that's showing somebody Jesus. No, not fully and completely. How do we show someone what Jesus is really like? I would argue... That the way we show Jesus, what people what Jesus is really like and what God is like and God's heart for them is only when we begin to treat other people as part of God's family and as part of our family. This, you understand, is actually a lot harder than having that conversation about Jesus in the supermarket line. But it's also way more powerful. It's saying, what would it mean if I began to treat my neighbor like I would my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. And that kind of love, that kind of caring is a lot more involved. It's a lot more powerful. So here's what I would challenge you to do. This is some a challenge I, I try to put on myself daily. And I believe that God has changed me deeply because of it. Find your own words for it. But ask God to give you his heart for the people around you. If scripture is right, and I believe it is, and we're saying we believe in all these things today, if this is always God's heart that every single person would be saved, that person who's out there committing crimes, that person who's out there who's homeless, that person who's got millions of dollars and doesn't care about anybody else, if God's heart is for all of those people, then... God, I say, please give me your heart for them. Because on my own, I probably don't have it. It's a great prayer to pray however you want to pray it. God, give me your heart for your people. And then finally, I would just just challenge you with this as well. When Jesus sent the marching orders out for the church, he said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I'm with you always. And so I don't care where you're at in your life and what age you're at. I think one of the good questions would be, who are you discipling? And maybe that's a question you've never asked yourself. 
And maybe you have a picture of discipling as being like, you know, I'm going to sit down and have coffee with someone and begin opening up the Bible and it may get to that point and that's a good point to get to. But what did discipleship look like for Jesus? Well, if we read the Gospels, discipleship with Jesus happened a lot while he was sharing life with his disciples. So they're going through the day and they're having conversations about bread and they're having conversations about um, water and they're having conversations about theology because someone's asking about taxes. I mean, they're just going through the day and Jesus is teaching them in that way. So when I say, who are you discipling? I mean this. Is there someone in your life who doesn't believe in Jesus, who doesn't know God's saving love, that you have a relationship with, that you're thinking about every day and you're praying about and you're being intentional about having a relationship with that person because you believe that's God's heart. I think God wants that for every one of us, to have at least one of those people in our life at all times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these amazing stories that capture our imagination of how you've worked through your people, how you've saved your people. We thank you for the stories you've given us in our life how you've worked and saved us. And while we can't see it, we know that there are more of those stories about to happen in the lives of those who don't know you yet because you love them. Give us your heart. Lord, give us your heart. The same heart that led Jesus to the cross. We want that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.